Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a joy and an honor of mine to, as always, an honor to have the opportunity to preach to you again from God's Word. Um, it's, it's been a blessing of mine over the past couple of weeks to, to prepare this sermon, uh, especially in light of the people who I was preparing it for. Um, words cannot express how much y'all have loved me over the past few years and building me up and pouring into me in my life. And, and, and especially over the past few months with the struggles of my family and especially my new wife. And, and, and that love has just been a cornerstone for, for me and, and my faith and, and my growth. And I can't express the gratitude that I have in my heart for, for you all here. Um, and so it's, it's been a blessing knowing that I'm going to have the opportunity this morning to encourage you all and to, in some sense, build y'all up in, in maybe some way that, that y'all have, have built me up. And, and I'm going to do that, hopefully, uh, this morning through the encouragement of looking at our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as always, there's no one else who we look to more to, to build our faith and to build us up in, in our walk. And, and as I've said before, and I'll say again, I, I can't think of a better book to do that than the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews is a glorious book. And it's, it's my favorite book of the Bible because of how much it magnifies Christ, because of how much it it shows how great his work was, how great his love is, how beautiful his sacrifice was, and how, how much he loves us. And that's, that's important for us. We need to be constantly reminded of that reality, of those truths, so that we would be built up in our faith and, and continue on, but yet also so that we could build up one another. But the book of Hebrews, as we all know, and as we've said before, is, is very difficult to read if you don't understand the context. And uh, to recognize and, and to, to understand the comparisons that the author makes and the different truths that he draws out, there's a specific context that he's drawing them out from, and that's the Old Testament. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you're not familiar with a lot of the Old Testament, it can be difficult to understand. And that's, that's because the author, writing the book, takes for granted that his audience, who's listening or reading, knows the Old Testament. That they are familiar with the law, the Old Covenant, and all of the ordinances therein. And so if we are going to understand, if we're going to draw out the fullness of the truth that he's trying to portray, then we too need to have a good understanding of the Old Testament. And so, before we jump into Hebrews, we're going to take part of our time this morning to discuss a topic that I've come to, to love and enjoy studying, um, and one that I believe is somewhat often misunderstood um, and even controversial within some circles. Um, and that topic is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, if you've had opportunity to read through the law and to, to read through the Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the places where it's, it's explained and, and thought out, it can, it can be kind of confusing. 
and often by many people it's deemed confusing. And, and I think the reason it's confusing is because what we most often hear when people speak of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is that it's said to have done nothing. That it didn't really have an effect other than pointing forward to Christ. But other than that, it had no other purpose. And for people who read the Old Testament, you read the law, this can be somewhat confusing because the Bible seems to state otherwise. That it, it did something, and I may not be able to understand what, but it, it seemed like it had an effect. And so this morning, to help us understand what exactly is going on, we're, we're going to take a portion of our time to go through three different points in the Old Testament that, that I think are foundational for understanding the sacrificial system and its purpose, its God-given purpose. And just before we do this, note that this is not going to be an exhaustive biblical theology. We don't have time for that. We don't have time to go through every single account where a sacrifice is mentioned, but we're going to go through, through three different accounts that, that I think will be the most helpful, three different accounts that push forward more the theology of the sacrifice than, than others. And we're going to look at the introduction of the sacrifice, we're going to look at a big development, and then the establishment of the sacrificial system. And so if you will, if you turn with me, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. It's always a good place to start. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And it's in this chapter, it's in the very beginning that we, we see, and it's often looked over if you're not paying attention, the first sacrifice that occurs in the Bible. And the, and the setting for Genesis 3, we know, is the fall. We have Adam and Eve who have just eaten of the fruit of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that the Lord had commanded them not to eat, the only thing he had commanded them not to do. And they did it. They sinned against God. They chose to go against his command, go against the, the word that he had told them and the, the promises and the, the, the great gifts that he had given them and do what was right in their own eyes. And so they go against his word and they sin and they fall. But what we're going to be looking at is the effect of that and, and the response of God on their behalf. So we see in, in Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, we, we read, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. And so we see upon eating of this, this fruit, upon sinning against God, the first thing that we realize, or the first thing that Adam and Eve notice is their nakedness. They realize that they are exposed, that they are naked. And before who? Before the only other person that was around, before God. Before the eyes of the one who had given them everything, they were now fully exposed because they had gone against the command, the only command that he had given them. 
But in response to this, we see something miraculous that the Lord does for them. He gives them the, the curses that we, that we read and also the gospel. And, and that's miraculous. But he also does something more. After giving them the curses, we read something pretty incredible in verse 21. We read, Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And in verse 21, we see what is known by, by scholars, and, and if you just read it, by anyone who reads the Bible, that this is the first instance of a sacrifice that we see throughout the entire Scripture. And we see both what it accomplishes, its effect, and, and what it's addressing. We see that the Lord makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And this skin clothes them. This skin effectively <clears throat> covers their nakedness. And Adam and Eve, upon sinning, their, their nakedness was their, their shame. It was their, their recognition of their sin. And what we see the Lord does in response is he gives them, by a sacrifice, a means to cover their shame and their nakedness. And we're not going to read any more into that, though we, we could. But we're going to take that, that, that understanding in our mind as we move forward to the next big portion where we see the, the sacrificial system developed. And that's a few generations later, all the way in, in, when, in, in Egypt, excuse me, in the book of Exodus, where we read of the Passover. And the setting for this next portion that we see a development in the sacrificial system is Israel in captivity to the Egyptians. And we all likely know the story very well. They've, they've been in captivity for a while, and the Lord has desired to bring them out of the, of the land. And we know of the curses and all the things that the Lord did to, to bring them out. And then finally, in the last curse, before the Lord does the last curse against Egypt to effectively accomplish the salvation of his people from this nation, to bring them out to be his people, we read of the institution of the Passover. And in Exodus 12, we see what this Passover did, what it accomplished, and what it was for. In Exodus 12, verses 5, starting in verse 5, we read that the Lord commanded them that they should take a lamb, and that lamb should be a male without spot or blemish, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And then later on down in verse 12 we see, And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are, and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so in this institution of the Passover, in this in this gift that the Lord has given to his people when they're in captivity to Egypt, we see both the, the sacrifice being made and the effect of that sacrifice. The people are to take a spotless lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and cover the doorpost and the lintel of their household so that the Lord would know that they were set apart from the Egyptians, from that nation, and that they were his people, and he would pass over them and not visit them with the curse that he was going to visit the rest of the nation of Egypt. And so we see the effect, again, is covering of blood on the household that set this people apart. And, and just like in Genesis, we saw that the sacrifice covered the shame of Adam and Eve, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So too in Exodus, you see that the blood of the sacrifice covered the household of the Israelites, setting them apart. And then we, we move on from this, and, and we move on to the establishment of the sacrificial system, which is the law. And in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in parts of Exodus, we read of the, the establishment of the, the, right, the right manner in which the Israelites should perform sacrifices that would be pleasing to the Lord. And we don't have time to go through all of the law, obviously, but suffice it to say that the purpose of the law, the purpose of the giving of the law and the sacrificial system from the Lord was that so the people of Israel that they would be holy as the Lord is holy. And I think there's one verse that kind of wraps this up more than, than many other verses. In Numbers 35, verse 34, we read, And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. And so we see the law was given to the people of Israel so that they would be holy. Why? Because the Lord their God is holy. And if they are the people of God, they need to be set apart from the rest of the nations. They need to be holy. And in addition to that, if they are not holy, they defile the name of the Lord. And they, they show themselves to not be set apart from the nations, but instead to take for granted the fact that they have the God of the universe dwelling within their midst. But the Lord just doesn't tell them to, to, be, to be perfect and be holy or else, but we see throughout the law an incredible gift of grace that the Lord offers to his people so that they could be set apart so that they could be holy. And that is the sacrificial system. Throughout Leviticus, we read of, of various accounts in which Israelites would be unclean and defiled and, and in some sense maybe defile the name of the Lord, but the Lord gives them a man, a man 
or a system in which they could be cleaned. And we, we read, and we're going to read from just one instance of a sacrifice in Leviticus. In Leviticus 14, verse 19. We read of the sacrifice for the cleansing of a leper. And we read, The priest shall next offer the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Then afterward, he shall slaughter the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be clean. And so we see that the Lord has given them a system by which they can be clean. They can be cleansed from their unholiness, from their defilement, so that they could serve the Lord, so that they could dwell in a camp with the Lord. But we see here, especially in this account, uh, the reason that this can be kind of confusing for people who are reading throughout through the Old Testament, people who are reading the law. We read in verse 19 that what this did is it, is it made atonement for the person on whom the sacrifice was being made. And this can be confusing because when we think, New, New Covenant, New Testament believers, of the word atonement, we think of the sacrifice of Christ. What Christ did on our behalf. But in the Old Testament, in the mind of the Israelites, this word atone didn't carry with it the, the connotation, the understanding that we have attributed to it throughout Christendom. Because the word in, in Hebrew, it's kafar, I don't know if that helps you, but it, it simply means to cover up. The definition of the word carries with it no other connotation than to cover. And, and so we see from, from the three examples that we've looked at, from the very beginning, a sacrifice was made to cover Adam and Eve. And in the Passover, the blood was used to cover the household of the Israelites, to set them apart. And in the law, sacrifices were made to cover the Israelites that they would be holy. And, and so we see the effect of the sacrifice. The effect of the sacrificial system was for an external cleansing and covering up of both the shame and the defilement of the Israelites. And this resulted in holiness for them, being set apart from the nations so that their God could dwell with them. And this is it. That's all that the sacrificial system was for. It's all it was meant to do for the people of Israel, to cover up their uncleanness that they could dwell with the Lord. And a side point to, to kind of hammer this point home, any time that we read of the promise of the new covenant, as we read this morning in Deuteronomy, the promise of the circumcision of the heart, anything promised an internal renewal, it's always separate from the sacrificial system. It's never attributed to the sacrificial system. But that, that new heart, 
that circumcision of the heart, the heart of flesh, the removal of the heart of stone is always attributed to the work of God. It's never attributed to the sacrificial system. But something that we, we need to understand is that this cleansing actually happened. Yes, the sacrificial system pointed forward to Christ, but there was a cleansing that occurred for the Israelites to be holy. And so we've, we've seen, as we've gone through our three examples of the, the Old Testament, that the sacrificial system was never meant to, to bring about eternal salvation, never meant to, to give that new heart that the Lord promised in various instances. Instead, it was only meant to address this external issue. But again, we note that it did this, literally. And with that in mind, if you would turn with me now to to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 13 and 14. It says, of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And right off the bat, when we read these two verses, we can see a, a point that the, the author's trying to make. Right off the bat, we understand that he's showing, he's saying, if the blood of bulls and goats could accomplish a cleansing, could accomplish some external, external reality, ritualistic cleansing from defilement, how much more will the blood of Christ do for you who believe in his name? How much more will the blood of Christ accomplish on your behalf if you believe in Him? Because the point he's trying to make is that the blood of Christ didn't simply cleanse externally, but it cleansed internally. That this is the new covenant that was promised. This is the new heart that was given to believers, and it is accomplished by the blood of Christ. And why? Because the blood of Christ was not like the blood of bulls or goats. The blood of Christ was much more precious and much more holy. Because it came from a much better sacrifice. It came from the sacrifice of a perfect man. And not only a perfect man, but the perfect Son of God. And it is only by this blood, only by the blood of Jesus Christ, that anyone could ever be cleansed internally before God. Because in the Old Testament and, and throughout all time, there was never a sacrifice, or an offering with this much value. Because Christ offered Himself through the eternal Spirit without blemish to God. 
This was a man who knew no sin. A man who never committed a single wrong in his entire life. And yet this man, who lived a perfect life, chose to offer himself up on the cross and take upon himself the full wrath of God on our behalf. And so not only did he live the perfect life that we should have lived, but he died the death that we deserved. And so only by that sacrifice, only by His work, can we ever stand before a holy God. Because what happened on the cross is when Christ took upon Himself the full wrath of God for your sins, His righteousness was attributed to you. And so before God, you stand holy and righteous and perfect simply by the blood of Christ. Through no work of your own was this ever accomplished. And through no work of your own will it be kept or sustained. But it is by this finished, once and for all accomplished work of the blood of Christ being spilled on your behalf that you can be saved. But I think there's yet a deeper meaning that the author is trying to get at here. I don't think he's simply talking about salvation of unbelievers, but I think he's trying to get at a reality for Christians in our everyday walk, in our lives. And this point has to do with that of sanctification and growth in the Christian life. In verse 13, the author speaks of a very specific ordinance in the Old Testament, which is the the red heifer, or the ordinance of the red heifer. And we're not going to turn there and read through it, but, but suffice it to say that this ordinance cleansed people from their defilement when they touched a dead body and returned from war that were forced to stay outside the camp. And so just to kind of walk through it, the, the red heifer, essentially what it was, it, it was a perfect spotless heifer that it never had a yoke put on it. And this heifer was taken outside the camp and it was, it was slaughtered. And the blood was sprinkled on the tabernacle, but the, the remains of the heifer remained outside the camp and were burned. And the ashes of which, combined with hyssop and a few other things, were added to water in what was known as a clean place, again, outside the camp. And for anyone who had been defiled by touching a dead body, they were forced to stay outside the camp. And anyone who was returning from war from outside the camp, who had touched a dead body, in order to be restored, to come back in the camp, to continue service, continue serving the Lord, they needed to be sprinkled by, this, by these ashes to be cleansed from this defilement. And I'm going to read just one part to, to help you understand this. And it's in, again, Numbers 19. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Numbers 19, verse 13. 
We read, anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not splashed on him. He shall be unclean, and his uncleanness remains on him. And so we see this is serious, that in order for anyone to come back into the camp, they needed to be sprinkled, because if not, they would defile the tabernacle of Yahweh. And this is the comparison that the author is drawing in verse 14. The comparison is then drawn to the cleansing that believers experience of our conscience. And he's, he's not drawing a conclusion to say that we must be cleansed continuously in order that we could be a part of the people of God. In fact, he goes on to correct this misunderstanding in the following chapter when he says Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. But the point that he's drawing out is, is it seems that there, there is an indication of a continual cleansing of our conscience not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Christ. Because as believers, our conscience is defiled when we sin. It's weakened. And as we all know, our conscience, if left unchecked and we continue in sin, will grow calloused to that sin. Where once we would be reviled by sin, we will no longer. And again, the author stating that we are perfected before God by the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, yet we still experience the effects of sin in our lives and in our everyday walk. And in 1 John verses, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because in our Christian walk, there is, there is an understanding that when we sin, we must confess and ask forgiveness. While our eternal righteousness is never at stake, we must still return to God continuously in confession and repentance. And the point that the author is now drawing out here is that, brothers and sisters, if this old covenant system was able to cleanse the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from the dead works in which you fall and in which you do if you turn to Him in prayer and in faith? He's already stated in previous chapters that Jesus Christ is our high priest. John has stated he is our advocate, and he stands at the right hand of the Father, ever living and pleading and interceding for us. So believe this, his sacrifice will never fail you. It will never let you down. Because it has perfected you for all time before the Father. 
so you can have assurance and confidence to come before this holy God in full confidence that He will cleanse your conscience, renew your conscience from the dead works in which we fall and restore us that we could again turn from our sin to serve Him. And there's no reason to believe otherwise. The blood of Christ is sufficient. So do not believe the lie that in your walk you have fallen one too many times. Do not believe the lie that surely this time it's been enough and I cannot turn to him again. Surely this time my conscience is too far gone. I cannot come to God again and receive a renewed, softened conscience. Because that is a lie. The blood of Christ is able to cleanse you from your dead works so that you could turn again to God in service to Him. And brothers and sisters, if we don't believe that, if we are sitting in sin and saying, I can't turn to God again, then we haven't understood the blood of Christ. We haven't understood how precious and holy that blood that was spilled on our behalf truly is. This, again, was not the blood of a bull or a goat. This was the blood of that perfect Son of God. And that blood is offered and willing to sanctify you and to grow you and to renew your conscience day by day as we walk in faith in the Son of God. Because Christ lives to make intercession for us before the Father. So we need to lift our heads up. Because God, through Christ, has finished the work. So strengthen your hands and lift up your heads. Because not only has He finished the work, but your God will finish the work. And if you're listening to this and you, you haven't understood the blood of Christ in this way, and you haven't understood the blood of Christ to ever have cleansed you from your sin, and all of this is new to you, then understand that today is the day of salvation. Today you can experience this cleansing from your sin to serve the living God. You can experience a new, car, a new heart and a new conscience that isn't calloused, but one that despises the things of the world and loves the things of God. And if you believe that, and if you believe that Jesus Christ has died in your place, you can experience the salvation and this perfection before the Holy God in which you have confidence to approach Him. But the author doesn't just stop at that. He, he goes on and, and he wraps up this, these two verses and this section with not only the cleansing of the conscience, but a purpose. The purpose of the cleansing of your conscience. 
And that is at the end of verse 14. That your conscience would be cleansed from dead works so that you can serve the living God. And so we see that the purpose of this sacrifice, the purpose of the sacrifice of Christ, was that we would serve Him and that we would live our lives set apart in service to Him. And the word that he uses in verse 14, the word serve, it's very interesting. This is the same word that he used in chapter 8 to describe the work that the, the Levites did within the tabernacle. It's the same word that, that describes the way in which they offer, the way in which they serve the Lord. And so again, to the original Jewish audience, this would be a shock. Because in the Old Covenant, only the Levites could serve within the temple. And so in their minds, they might, they'll, they'll be thinking, well, isn't, isn't this limited to the Levites? Shouldn't, shouldn't only the Levites serve in the manner in which you're speaking? And then in addition to that, they, they would even go on to think, well, isn't this just limited to the Jews too? We're the people of God. We're the ones who are to serve God. But the author in, in this verse, by using this word, transports the one reading and the one listening into that service of the Lord, to that divine service of the Lord, that personal service that only the Levites had in the Old Covenant. And so now we see it's not only one group, one specific group of people that can serve the Lord, but all who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And this is the priesthood of the believers. We are a, a royal priesthood set apart for God to do the work of God. Just as the Levites were set apart to do the work of God, so we are set apart from the world to serve God and to do His will. And we say we serve in that same magnitude and yet even a greater magnitude than that of the Levites. Because we not only bring sacrifices of bulls and goats, we don't bring those at all, but we bring sacrifices pleasing to God. And what are these sacrifices? What is this service? How does this look? If you'll turn with me to chapter 10, starting in verse 19. In conclusion to this section, the, the author then goes on to say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we see that this, the effect of the blood of Christ was was not that we would just be 
holy, but it's that we would serve. And in what manner do we serve? We serve the church. We serve one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Once we were not a people, yet now we are a people. We are called to one another, to love one another, to stir one another up in Christ, to build one another up, to encourage one another that we would not stumble in the race, but that we would strive forward as with the joy set before us that we would please God through Christ. And we know that this is accomplished, that this this has been done by the blood of Christ. And so let's do that. Let's continue to do that. Let's build one another up in our faith. Let's build one another up in Christ, in the truth of the word of God, that we would not forsake his word, but strive on to love one another. And I want to finish again by going to the end of the book and reading more about this service and starting in Chapter 12, verse 28. The author says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let the love of the brothers continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for the sexually immoral and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. These are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Service to Him in and all as we recognize who our God is more and more every day and we desire to serve him more and more every day. But again, this is seen through the church, through the building up of one another by his word, through the service of one another in everyday things such as calling, sending a text, praying, making food for, these are all things in which we serve one another because we know how Christ has served us. And so, brothers and sisters, let's continue on in this. As we grow in our faith, as we grow in the knowledge of Christ and of God, to offer up sacrifices pleasing to Him through the love and fellowship of the brotherhood 
and of the church. He's finished the work. And we can trust in that.